This is Dollars and Change, a podcast about the intersection of business and social impact. Brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Welcome to Dollars and Change. I'm Catherine Klein. I'm the Vice Dean for Social Impact at Wharton and a Professor of Management. And I am really excited today to speak with Mary Ellen Iskandarian. Mary Ellen is the president and CEO of Women's World Banking. Mary Ellen, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. So let's let's start a little bit with you. You joined Women's World Banking as its president and CEO 15 years ago. Talk to us about that move. It's obviously kept you and engaged you all this time. Why did you make the move? Well, yeah, I just celebrated my uh, my 15 years uh, about 10 days ago. So we're very, I'm just delighted to have celebrated that anniversary. Um, so yeah, it was it was an enormous move, maybe a, a bigger move than I knew I was going to be making at the time I made it. But I had at that point been at the IFC, part of the World Bank International Finance Corporation, the private sector arm of the World Bank. Um for 17 years, and I had done a year before that at the bank proper in the Young Professionals Program, had a a wonderful career there, got to see really some of the most incredible, you know, history in the making. I worked in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union for for several years and really rebuilding, reshaping financial systems in, in many, in many respects. But to be honest, I, I really felt, um, the, the more I progressed in the organization, the more I took on senior roles there, the, the name of that game really is managing up. And I felt like I was spending more and more of my time kind of building out my wingspan to protect the people working under me so they could get the good stuff done while I, you know, was focused um, more internally on the, the politics really of the, the World Bank group. And that wasn't why I went into development. And I just felt I had gotten so far away from the people that I had be taken on a development career to serve. And I had um, most of my, as I as I mentioned, most of my time at, at the IFC had been in the financial sector. And so I'd acquired over time some real knowledge about microfinance and had run a fairly large portfolio of those, those investments in a number of different countries. And so when I had the headhunter call from um, about Women's World Banking, I knew a little bit about microfinance, but I, I had such an eye opener in getting to know that organization. And then really the thing to my lasting shame almost was that in the whole you know 18 years I'd been at the bank and the IFC, I had never once asked a bank or an insurance company or an equity fund how many women's businesses they were funding, how many women depositors did they have, were their clientele or their their investment officers, loan officers, women versus men, never asked any of that. And so it really, when I, I had this huge awakening upon coming to, even just during the interview process at Women's World Banking, I realized there was a whole other element of development that I I wanted passionately to learn about, and I, I kind of wanted to make up for some of what I had missed in the time I'd been at the bank. Right. That's such a fascinating example because it, right, it, it, it highlights how 
unconscious, you know, implicit, these biases, norms, expectations are that, you know, like, why even ask this question? It's not relevant. It's not what we're thinking about. Right? We're not checking. Um, that's, that's fascinating. And right, you know, and then that, um, that women who are educated and professionals and interested in all these topics, and we might miss these questions, because I think that's true of me as well. So how hard it is for others to be empowered along this path. And you talked about uh, microfinance. So let's, I'm sure many of our listeners know what microfinance is, but quickly, what is microfinance? So microfinance specifically, as opposed to, say, the broader conversation around financial inclusion, is making, you know, fairly small loans. I mean, we're talking in most cases, an average of somewhere between say $200 and $500 loan to a very small, often or primarily an informal unregistered um, business that would have, you know, maybe the sole proprietor, maybe one or two um, employees. I think the, the informal nature of both the business and often the finance itself is kind of endemic to microfinance. Over the years, more microfinance institutions have become formal and have become um, chartered banks and they're allowed to take deposits. Um, but the mission has always been of those institutions has been to serve low-income populations who are not served outside of the mainstream. Got it. Thank you. Um, and this has been part of Women's World Banking strategy and mission, but let's turn and talk a little bit more about what this organization is endeavoring to do and has been doing since the, it's 40 plus years ago, when I guess it was uh, founded in 1979, I think. Um, yes, yes. Um, right, so you've been around and doing this work for quite a while. Um, when I think of women's world banking, I think of, you know, a mission to increase women's financial inclusion and women's empowerment and economic stability and prosperity around the world. And what I'm hoping you could do is talk about this, the notion of financial inclusion. As I was leading up on uh, women's world banking, getting ready for our talk, it struck me that it was really worth unpacking this term. Because I think it's a term we can use kind of lightly, and 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 but it, what does it actually mean? So what does it actually mean? What is financial inclusion? What is the absence of financial inclusion that many women experience, and why is that important? So I love the way you you phrased the question and referred to the absence because I think it is one of those concepts that's very often sort of defined more by what it isn't than what it is. Um, so it's it's very notably not one of the sustainable development goals, for example. So there is no you know, global effort to, as, as stated under the, the, the global goals, to reduce financial inclusion. However, there are numerous metrics underlying the goals. I think there are seven of the 17 goals that explicitly refer to increasing access to finance to low-income people as being essential to accomplishing water and sanitation goals, uh, health and nutrition goals, gender equality. So I think the idea of it not being the end, but being the means mm -hmm. is, is really so central to an understanding of what financial inclusion is. I guess another, another way of defining it as what it isn't, uh, microfinance really is very much predicated on the extension of a loan and savings has tended to be sort of secondary. Whereas with financial inclusion, 
we're thinking more about all of the financial products and services that a person needs to to transact in daily life, whether they are an entrepreneur or not. So, you you know, everything that you and I need, we need to be able to make timely and convenient payments and not pay a for, fortune to do so. We need bank accounts to save money in. We need insurance to protect us from, from risks and mitigate those risks. We need to have long-term retirement savings or pensions. And yes, we do need credit, whether it's for business credit or to smooth consumption or to make large purchases. And so inclusion at least the way that we practice it at, at Women's World Banking, and why I, I was so pleased that you read the the you know the security and prosperity is it's it's not just about creating that safety net. It's also about being able to feel confident enough that you've got that that safety net in place that you can take risks and really bring about prosperity. So it's a it's a much broader set of ways of engaging with the world, engaging with the formal economy than simply getting a loan. And, and what is the gap uh, in the U.S.? What is the gap in, around the world in the extent to which you know, women have bank accounts versus men, the extent that women have access to credit or credit cards versus men, that they have um, insurance or can get a loan? So what's the magnitude of this gap today? So the the data that's that's collected, the most well known um, database is called the Global Findex. That's done by um, funded by the Gates Foundation, done at the World Bank in conjunction with the um, the Gallup Poll Organization. And they every three years poll, you know, thousands of people around the world on their use of financial products and services and. The last data, and unfortunately, the last three-year survey was supposed to be last year, was postponed until next year. So we're very hopeful that we'll see some 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 good data. But the last set of uh, of data showed us that 1.7 billion people in the in the world did not have access to either a bank account or even a mobile money account. So that ability to store value on your phone now has been recognized as being making you financially included. Of that 1.7 billion, very close to a billion of those people are women. And so much more disproportionately the the onus is is falling hard on women. Then right on the heels of that, because so much of the world is, is acquiring financial services through digital means, through that mobile, you know, that mobile phone, and ideally a mobile phone that has, you know, internet access. So the smartphone, mm-hmm. um, that gap is the one that we're, we're really focused on today. So we've got 15% fewer cell phones in the hands of women than in men. So fairly significant gap. And maybe even more importantly, when even when women have the phone, their understanding of how to use it, the, the full capability, their ability to be confident in using that phone is, is much less so than, than men's. And so the, the nature of the gap starts to get... Um, you know, slightly more nuanced than just counting how many people do or don't have have a bank account. 
Um, and so that's really the, those issues of access to the technology and then the confidence and ability to use it mm-hmm. is very central to the way that that we're working. Can you talk about the consequences of, you know, again, women being underbanked, not having access to whether it's a bank account or it's a, an app on a smartphone where they can store their, their own money? I mean, if I play the devil's advocate, the real devil's advocate, what's the matter? You know, they have a father, they have a brother, they have a husband. Why is this important? Well, and I, I, it's such a wonderful question. And it really, that is right at the heart, I think, of the mission of Women's World Banking. There are many estimable organizations that we partner with all the time that are working to close that gap, make sure that that 9% overall around the world gap between women owning a bank account and men owning a bank account gets closed. But the so what question is really where I think Women's World Banking differentiates itself. And maybe I can take a minute and talk about the ways that we measure why it's so important that women have that that access in their own names. we use a framework that um, Marty Chen from Harvard developed for more specifically for micro entrepreneurs, and she worked with us to sort of broaden the lens that we could we could look at. But she she talked about four changes that women would go through in or could potentially go through in their lives as they interacted with financial services, and the, the first and sort of easiest to measure was um, material change. Was there more money coming in? Were there, did the family have more assets under, under their control? So that's a fairly easy one. Second one was, was, was there cognitive change? Did she learn, sort of getting back to that idea of um, financial capability, did she learn anything as she acquired this new product, this new service, this new, this new access? But then the last two changes, I think, are the really fascinating ones. The next one is relational change. And this is where like some of the really cool stuff comes in, because it's about, you know, did that woman's bargaining power in her household change in any way by the fact that she had a savings account in her own name or the fact that if there was a government COVID relief payment, it came directly to her account and not to her husband's. There's some fascinating data on women um, voting more often or even standing for election more often once they have um, they have become financially included and they're confident in that in that role. And then there's there's it's still more equivocal than we'd like it to be, but there's some fascinating research even on intimate partner violence and whether being financially included, having control over financial resources does make a woman more vulnerable or less vulnerable to both physical and, and emotional abuse. As I say, still need for more research, but it's looking as if that that uh, that balance is beginning to shift, that it can really be a way, if, if nothing else, to get out of an abusive relationship. And then that final set of changes is really about the woman herself. Does she have more of a sense of self-esteem? Is she planning for the future or is she still living day to day? Does she see herself 
as independent of, as you said, that that husband, that father, and her control over those resources, the control that those resources give her over choices in her life. And we have a, a very, very um, complicated, actually complex, not complicated, but a complex framework for measuring those kinds of changes. It is the major sort of foundational monitoring and evaluation tool that we use on our on our project work mm-hmm. now. And I think it says, it says so much about the role of money and the control of money in a woman's life. Yeah. Um, so Women's World Banking does many things. Uh, can you, you know, give us an overview of your main ways in which you are working to drive change and where? So the the thing we're probably best known for, and that we do um, do a great deal of work, is is our advisory role, where we'll go into a financial service provider and we'll either design from scratch a product that they they have in order to reach um, a particular segment of women. Or where I think the work can actually be more interesting and we're doing more of is taking a product that they already have and either adapting the marketing of it or um, making sure that the documentation for it or the, um, the loan processing process or the credit analysis process is more suited to, to women. So taking something they're already doing and shaping it so that it meets women's needs. I, one of my favorite stories is a project we did in Pakistan with one of the largest um, mobile companies there and they had created a wallet and they had very explicitly said they wanted this to have a financial inclusion role. Pakistan has very serious financial exclusion problem. And so they... Uh, but they brought us in after they'd launched it and found that only 12% of the clients of this wallet were women. And they had so intended that to be their client base, but, and wanted us to come in and design a woman's product. But when we looked at the data of the product they already have, it we found that the women, that 12% of women were using the product exactly the way the men were to the same volume at the same level of profitability. So they didn't really need another product, but the real, the real problem was the way they were onboarding clients was they had mobile network agents that were small shop owners, 97% of whom were men. And so you were asking a Pakistani woman to go into a shop alone run by a man. And then if she, you know, had made it that far and gone into the shop, she then had to give him her cell phone number in order mm-hmm. to, to gain an account. And, you know, in that cultural environment, that just wasn't going to happen. And so we worked with them on a building a network. It's actually fascinating of, um, we did this also with Unilever. We took some Unilever shopkeepers that um, they, a network of women shopkeepers that they'd established all over the country and taught them how to be mobile money agents. And so, you know, overnight we, you know, quadrupled the number of, of women agents. And really that was a much, much friendlier mechanism to onboard. We changed a lot of the language um, of our marketing. So that, that advisory work is our number one, one tool. The s- second is we're, we've done an increasing amount of policy advocacy where we're working directly with regulators. Um, in fact, we've 
got a leadership and diversity training program for regulators that has, has, I think, really opened the eyes of both senior regulators and central banks and insurance um, commissions and pension regulators, um, as well as more junior high potential women who are making a career in regulation on not only the need for diversity amongst regulation in order to see who it is you're trying to serve or protect as a regulator, um, but also the, the gender implications in policy that they need to start thinking about. Um, so the policy and advocacy pieces is, is the second one. And then the area that I'm very excited about and is probably our newest and what I missed most when I left the IFC and came to Women's World Banking is in 2012, we launched our first impact investment fund. And we are now in exit mode on that first fund where we're um, sort of har harvesting our investments and have had a $75 million second, um, first close on a second fund that we will have the final closing at the beginning of next year. Um, and it's just been, it's been fascinating just seeing how the sector, the investment sector has changed in that the first fund was primarily traditional microfinance institutions that we invested in. The second fund, we've got fintechs, we've got uh, an affordable housing finance company in India that insists that women's name be on the title to the property so that they have that, that ownership um, of an asset. It's, it's such an exciting time out there to be an investor with this lens, with this, this agenda okay. of increasing both the access to finance for women, but also doing it with more women in the leadership and, and management of the companies. Interesting. And what is it that you think um, the impact, like the direct impact investing does for you? Why was this an important element to add to your toolkit in addition to the other things you've always done? Well, it, at the time, it, it was really driven by two very, very distinct things. One is we were a very demand-driven fund at the time. We had, we had, microfinance institutions primarily around the world who were making that decision, okay, we're going to move from being an NGO to a registered bank, a commercial bank that's fully regulated. And Women's World Banking, we want you as a shareholder. And we didn't have any means with which to do that. So there was a, a real demand for us to start playing that role. The second thing, and I think the, the thing that really convinced our board that, that not only was there demand, but, but it really was consistent with our, our advocacy role, is we did a piece of, of research that looked at what happened to those microfinance institutions when they made that shift. Mm -hmm. And we looked at 39 institutions and found that within the first four years of having taken outside capital from external shareholders, the average percentage uh, of women clients weight went from 86% down to 59%. And women in the staff and leadership and, and board of the institutions was a bloodbath. It was almost as if as soon as you become a bank, you have to kick out the woman who has successfully led this, you know, really profitable NGO and replace her with a man. And then the board chair has to be a man too. <laughs> and so it was such, there was such an, uh, you know, a direct research impetus for us to be an investor that, that lived out that investment thesis. Um, so much to talk about, but I want to make sure that we touch on COVID and the, the pandemic. 
you know, tell us how this has affected women and your work. But I know you've also seen some silver linings that you didn't, you weren't sure that would ever appear. So how how is how is the work been affected by COVID? So uh, yeah, I'm always I'm always reluctant to talk too ebulliently about the effects of COVID because there's there's no question that women have had that in all parts of the world have seen that you know the unpaid care work the unpaid portion of their day extending um, well beyond where it was pre-COVID. And you've just seen a much more disproportionate impact of that that work falling on the shoulders of women. You've also seen just an epidemic of gender-based violence everywhere in the world, particularly during those, those lockdown situations. In some countries, you've seen spike ups in uh, teen pregnancy and child marriage as in countries that, you know, you'd really started to reverse those trends, but then during lockdown, a lot of really terrible tendencies seem to rear their heads again. So undeniably, women were on the front lines as first responders in many, both health and other other professions. And so they, I, I don't in any way mean to diminish how hard the impact was on women. That said, the digitization of finance the number of um, COVID relief programs that perhaps governments had took a successful conditional cash transfer program that was already targeting women and modified that for COVID relief purposes, you had a lot of payments going directly to women, as I say, often digitally. So that increase in, in cell phones, that increase in the technology, you saw in just a matter of you know, the the period of the COVID, you've seen that gap narrow substantially. You had some countries like India that made their COVID relief payment only payable to women. And so, you know, within something like a little over two weeks, you had 25 million bank accounts opened primarily by women in order to facilitate that payment. So you've seen things that we've been talking about a lot, using government payments as an on-ramp. You've seen uh, employers much more significantly adopt digital um, wage payments. Again, things that we've talked about for a long time as facilitators of financial inclusion during COVID really now have become um, drivers of inclusion. And I think, so the exciting piece is like, now that they're in, now we have them in the system, how do we keep them there? And how do we continue to make financial services relevant to these people that we've brought into the sector? To wrap us up, you've been at Women's World Banking for 15 years, as as we mentioned, this is an organization that is 42 years old. As you look ahead and as you look at sort of where we are in the world today, I mean, when I look back 15 years, when I look back 40 years, part of me is like, wow, we've come a really long way. And the other part of me is, um, you know, goodness, we have a long way to go. Um, what do you think we need to do to have in place to really increase women's financial inclusion and empowerment in the U.S. and around the world? You know, as if you... You, know, you could wave your magic policy, world-changing wand. You know what are the kinds of things that would be happening in the next ten years to make a really significant difference in women's inclusion? 
Well, I, th- I certainly think a very big piece of it brings us back to the earlier part of our conversation where I was recounting never having asked a banker how many w- women businesses he was funding, for example, is that idea that we need to stop thinking of serving women, whether they be low income women or, you know, high net worth women as a, you know, as a nice to do or a follow on or something that's segmented off in a separate, you know, a separate group that, you know, nobody sees as a career uh, builder inside a financial service provider, but to where it's recognized as an enormously untapped market. You only need to spend a little time with insurance providers to get them talking about how really saturated, you know, the population that's actually going to buy insurance today has been tapped. And if there's going to continue to be growth in insurance, it's going to have to be in new markets. You know, the far-sighted ones really see women-owned businesses, professional women, educated women as that next frontier. So I think it certainly may not be the the full waving of the wand you talked about, but I think recognizing this as a commercial imperative, as a market to be served, allows us to accomplish a lot of the development objectives that we have that are, that are attainable, achievable through financial inclusion. But it, it can be done in you know, really commercially viable way for the people who are, are looking for new clients. Great. So really creating and making clear the business imperative. Exactly. Thank you so much for, for chatting with us. No, this has been a great conversation. So much to learn and so much more. I will, I will, I will say that, as I said, uh, you know, in preparing for this conversation, I was spending additional time on your website and I encourage others to be you know, to look at your work and, and dig in because there's just so much to learn and it, it's quite fascinating to see what's happening all around the world and to think about where we are in the U.S. on these dimensions as well. Thank you Wonderful. so much. Dollars and Change is brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. To learn more, visit us at socialimpact.wharton.upenn.edu.